This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There's no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in, the, in Eden, and there he put the man in, he had formed. The Lord God made all the kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and were good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, I was skipping down to 19, or no, not 19, uh, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. When he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God... Uh, made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought it to her, brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So one of the things... Uh, I emphasized about this creation account last week is the fact that it presents everything emerging from the earth, from the ground, atome, plants, animals, human beings. And, and while I've emphasized that these are not to be read as lab reports, there is a sense in which that is just obviously true in a scientific sense that things come out of the land. I mean, even when you think about the land here, the land here was formed by glaciers. If you were to transport yourself to this exact spot a million years ago, we would be embedded in a blanket of ice about a mile high. And when, but when those uh, glaciers eventually melt, about, what, 11,000 years ago, the runoff from that melt will carve up the landscape and leave you know, the streams and rivers we know today. And they'll leave behind a layer of topsoil. And this topsoil, combined with our what's called a, a humid continental climate, will allow for incredible plant diversity, some of which takes the form of forest, some of it uh, is plains, some of it is savanna. And that, that part of it actually kind of surprises me that this is also native, that we have, that this used to be, there used to be plains and savannas. 
right? Um, because all you have to do is a minimal amount of landscaping. And you notice that everything is always trying to turn back into forest, right? You leave anything long enough, it's going to move toward becoming a forest again. Um, an abandoned lot eventually becomes a woods, not a prairie. But the reason we don't see prairies naturally occurring anymore is because prairies are sustained by wildfires, which we tend to put a damper on. So anyway, all this plant diversity, it's remarkable, this, this climate that's shaped, or the land shaped by glaciers, climate shaped by uh, the semi, or we're on the milder end of a humid continental climate. It enables there to be wide range of wildlife as well. All these plants, all these animals. Um, but because we're in this humid continental climate, we get sort of the extremes of winter and summer. And so a lot of those animals migrate. It's, a temp it's ideally suited for them for certain types of the year. That's the land we live on. That's how it came into being. That's how life came out of the earth here. Now, all that may sound very obvious, but you know, it, I, it, what's, I think what's sort of remarkable to me is I have lived as long as I have, and I've given very little thought to land and how my life comes from the land. I have been more or less oblivious to the significance of this because I am a human being who happened to be born in the latter part of the 20th century. I grew up in a culture that was sort of determined to act as though none of that mattered. You know, for millions of years, life had to adapt to the local conditions, to land and climate. Critters honed their tastes and skills over thousands of years based on what the local conditions provided. Only one critter is an exception. Only one critter learned to play the game differently. Us, human beings. We would adapt the land to our needs rather than having to adapt our needs to the land. And I grew up in which the land and what it provided wasn't even, was never even really a consideration. Getting the resources needed to survive was not a question of what the land provided, not in my mind. It was about what you could buy with money. That's why in nursery school, uh, we were all tested to determine our readiness for kindergarten. And one question was, where does milk come from? And I answered, the store. They said, uh, could you be more specific? Charlie's Market, which was, our, which was our local store. Anyway, I think my second year of nursery school really served me well. I wasn't quite ready for kindergarten. Because they also asked, how many legs does a dog have? I said, five. Said, Come on. I'm like, yeah, five. I mean, I don't know. I think, it was just, I, I think I've never been a big fan of like standardized tests. So anyway, enough about me. But the fact is, it's true. That is how I experienced milk. I never went, hey, let's go to the cow and get some milk. No, we went to the store. I never went to the, uh, a tree to get fruit. No, we went to the produce aisle. Uh, you know, and, and, and it, didn't come, it didn't come from local trees. It may have been shipped in from Central America. There's, 
so we were so detached from that creatureliness, our, our connection to land to, 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 and what it provides. Uh, and there is a, an element to which that fact, what makes us different, it actually does also reinforce what's being said here in Genesis, is that there is something significant about these creatures made from dirt and divine breath. These, what we called last week, these bridge creatures between the divine realm and the earthly realm. There's something different about us and how we live on the earth. We can live like gods. We can create things to our own will. Now, but there are consequences to, as to how we do that, right? And geologists, of course, divide Earth's timeline into various periods and eras and epochs. And, and it, there's and changes from one epoch to the next are based on changes to the local conditions. What happens, what's happening on the Earth often when there's, you know, say a, a super volcano or a meteor hits or whatever, there's mass extinction and everything changes and new creatures, new creatures with new tastes, new uh, skills evolve based on those local conditions. And we've entered into a new epoch. Well, the epoch that began or that with the melting of the glaciers is called the uh, Holocene, I think is how it's pronounced, the Holocene epoch. So it's 11,000 years ago. We've started the Holocene epoch. But scientists have noticed that we are witnessing the kind of mass extinction that is associated with the ending of an epoch and the beginning of another. Local conditions have changed so dramatically over the last 100 years. Less even. But it's not a meteor. It's not a super volcano. It's us. We're doing it. And so the name given to this new epoch is the anthro, what's Anthropocene. Anthro is the Greek word, done with that page. Anthro is the Greek word for uh, human. We are like gods. We are also like, can be like gods of destruction. Because we are only like gods. We are a mixture of earth and divine breath. And while we may rule the earth, we are still very much connected to it. As much as we may be in, unaware of it. Our fates are tied. I listened uh, to a podcast this week uh, that uh, the guest was a uh, professor of religious studies at Case Western. His name is Timothy Beale. And his latest book is entitled, When Time is Short. And this is the opening line of the book. This is a book about our denial of death as a species. In other words, not our denial about our individual deaths. There's a book called Denial of Death that is about that. That's, this, this is different. 
The land and climate has changed so much under our rule to the point where we may make it uninhabitable for our species. And how do we live when time is short? Now, I've heard people argue that, well, that that's sort of alarmist, that that's impossible. There are people who quote from the scriptures, an up, actually an upcoming chapter from Genesis, to say, no, 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 God promises that as long as the earth shall remain, uh, you know, the seasons shall remain and, and, and God will not destroy the earth. Uh, and, so, and they believe that the idea that we might be having this sort of impact is or arrogant and they may see it as a socialist plot, whatever. Okay. But ruling out the possibility that human beings can have that much of an impact, that ruling out the possibility that we're causing irreparable harm to the planet, it not only is, contradicts much of the science, but it, there is a theme in Scripture which very much says how we exhibit our godlikeness in the world to the earth has dire consequences. I mean, the two major themes of the Old Testament, I mean, the, the, the themes that shape Israel's imagination are exodus and exile. In the exodus story, Egypt exercises a godlike rule over Israel. They, they are oppressive, right? And to undo that oppression, as if you're familiar with the story, Moses comes and there are the 10 plagues. The 10 plagues illustrate a creation that is coming unglued. Things are out of control. It's lashing out, right? One of the plagues is darkness, right? Uh, it's sort of like the creation is reverting back to that Genesis 1 verse 1 state. And then you have exile, which I think is, I mean, is really interesting. Uh, and now it's Israel that's failing to live up to its God-like role. It's being as image bearers of God. And again, there's this intimate connection between that and the creation. I mean, it's, here's Jeremiah talking about judgment. He says, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. Again, it's, the creation reverts back to the nothingness. The formless and empty is exactly the language of Genesis 1-1, or Genesis 1-2. It's like Israel's unfaithfulness is causing the creation to revert back to some sort of primordial state. And then there's this. How long is the exile? It's 70 years. At some point, maybe I'll, I'll go into more detail how this all works out. But why 70 years? Well, the best explanation for why 70 years is that the time between David's reign and the exile is about 500 years. Israel is commanded. So every seven years, you are to have a year of jubilee. And part of the year of jubilee is let the land rest. Don't grow crops, just let it rest every seven years. There is no record of Israel doing that once. 
year jubilee, I mean, you're supposed to free slaves, return land back to those, you know, cancel debts and give the land rest. They never do it. So then they go off into exile, 70 years. How many, after 500 years, how many years of rest is the land owed? 70, about, right? Seven, every seven years, seven times 70 is 490. So that's the most compelling reason or explanation for why exile lasts 70 years is God's going to give the land rest whether we give the land rest or not. Now you may be thinking, wow, that's all Old Testament stuff. The, the New Testament isn't about land. Well, it's not about a particular land. It's not about the land of Israel. It's about much more. It's about the whole earth. And I mean, think about what Paul says in, in, in his letter to the Romans. The whole earth, it waits in eager expectation for the sons of God. There's another passage talking about the earth groaning as if in travail, as if birthing, right? The, the earth is longing. The earth is longing for us to be God-like in the way that we were created, to be the creatures who bridge the divine and earthly realms, who show, who express the care and love of God to it. They were waiting, and the whole earth is waiting in eager expectation. So again, there is a profound connection in the scriptures between the, the earth, creation, and our, our fates are tied. Anyway, so the book talks about, yeah, we, we can't be in denial. And oftentimes, what, what once, the other option from denial, you go from denial to panic, right? And I am not encouraging panic. I'm not saying we should start uh, some sort of doomsday cult here. Uh, that's next week. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, and, and I also realize if at any point a sermon you have to say, look, I'm not trying to encourage panic or a doomsday cult. Probably a sign the sermon's going wrong. <laughs> but my point is that we, that these things, we can't just rule this out. It may be that our species' days are numbered. I think that's terribly sad. You know, and so while, and while the other, the other most important thing is, while the specific circumstances in which we might have to confront this may be specific to our time. The fact is, another thing in the, in the New Testament is that we should always see ourselves as living in the end of days. And why, why would they call the end of days? No, they're not talking about this. No, they're talking about the fact that, look, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit and Jesus promised to come again. All right, those are the two big promises that, that Jesus promised. The one has been fulfilled on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's poured out. And so ever since then, we're just waiting for that last one, for Jesus to come again and make things new, restore all things. So ever since Pentecost, we've been in the end of days. So we've always had to live as though we are near the end. So when in Peter it says... Uh, it says, uh, the end of all things is near. It doesn't go on to say, panic. No, it says, uh, be sober. Uh, be, be alert and sober. That's what 
our calling is always to have a sense like, look, the end is near, but we're not in despair. We're not to panic. We, are, we have a hope. There's this promise that we are counting on. So we have to live, we have to live alert and we have to live soberly. You know, we're not going to go nuts on it. So what does, the script, what does that look like? What does it look like if we don't resort to fear and panic and, or, or despair? Well, here we go. This one thing I think we could consider. You know, last summer, while I was stumbling about in that, that supply closet, I came across those old architectural drawings from about, I think, 2003. And about specifically the one that was going to be this facility, the, the multi-purpose facility that was to be built next to this building. So those plans, again, they're about 2003, so they're about 20 years old. And I don't all, know all the details about how that process went or how close we were to actually breaking ground and st to start building, but clearly it was serious, right? Uh, you had plans drawn up and you cleared land for it. Uh, you know, you, you, and you implemented the first stage of the plan, which was the narthex. But in the end, what you have is a beautiful narthex and a beautiful lawn. Because those plans had to be abandoned. And it's probably, I mean, it was a wise decision. But a lawn. You know, Jen uh, picked up this book called The Landscaping Revolution by Andy and Sally Wasowski. And they describe sort of the history of lawns. Describes how manicured lawns were a status symbol, a sign that you had so much wealth, you could, afford, you could afford to turn part of your land into a mere ornament. It, had not, it didn't have to serve any purpose other than to show how uh, wealthy you were, that you had the money to just, you didn't have to grow anything on it that would feed you, you and you, had, you could have hire help to take care of it, and it just became this status symbol as it looked pretty. And by and large, we all learn to develop, to have that priority, have this status symbol, a beautiful lawn. And they can, be, they can be beautiful. But the fact is, it runs contrary to the, way, to, the, to the way the land came about, to the kinds of things that it naturally produces. I mean, you have to fight it to keep a lawn looking beautiful. So the question to ask is, what if we could use that land differently? What if it could be something more than what just looks pretty? What if it could be something more than just a reminder that we had plans that we had to abandon? You know, so much of the earth is exploited and abused. So much of it. Uh, tells us uh, that we have used this power we have in ways that are exploitive, hurtful. What if, what if that be, that lawn tells a different story? You know, part of loving a person is listening to the person, understanding the person's needs, right? Well, the land has been trying to tell us what its needs are. Needs, the, the creatures have needs that they need to be 
that need to be listened to. What if that little patch of earth is a place to testify to a different story? To use the phrase from last week, what if here, there's one place where we're demonstrating our commitment to being those bridge creatures, beings who care for the earth in ways that reflect the love and joy its creator has for it. So it not only looks beautiful, but that it flourishes. And because it flourishes, the creatures that arise from it flourish. Native plants sustaining local wildlife, birds and butterflies, and human beings. Because if we take the scriptures seriously, we have to recognize that our attempts to deny our connection to land is to deny part of who we are, what we were created from and what we were created for. In recent months, the Vision Prayer Team has been talking about this. We want you to be a part of that conversation. We want to hear your ideas about how we might make the most of that little patch of earth. How might it testify to our love of God, our love of creation, and our love of neighbor? Our neighbors, you know, could come and enjoy maybe simply relaxing or meditating or socializing or maybe even working. Maybe it's an opportunity to reconnect with land through work. But not just our human neighbors, our bug, our bird neighbors. How might we love them through that little patch of earth? Here's, here's earth that they find hospitable to the, the, their finely honed tastes and skills. And the other question is, who might we partner with in this? Who, are, who might our resources be? What are the resources out there that could help us clarify our vision and make it a possibility? Yeah, you know, I, I understand there's been sort of a long-standing conversation about signage. Uh, and, and I think it's even worth thinking about, you know, a sign, the job of a sign is to communicate who, who, you, who we are. Well, it seems to me that that little patch of land could speak to who we are and what we value more vividly than any sign could. In a world that so often looks like it's on the brink, that little patch of land could be a little sign of hope, a sign that this world belongs to God and God loves it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.